Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. All right, Matt, we are back and we are diving in to three chapters today. We're going to be covering what, 34, 5, and 6, 34, 35, and 36. We're closing, we're just about to close out book two. Yeah plowing through this baby pretty wild man i mean we're just kind of plunging away and uh, i'm excited about this i was uh, thinking a lot about dune reading it today and um thinking it's been a it's been a bit since we sit down to record this obviously um what people don't know is we're recording this ahead of time you know this podcast uh was released in October of 2021. I don't know where it is in this because it's almost like we're time traveling. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where we currently Who are? Who knows where we currently are, what's going on, or if the world has even ended. <laughs> <laughs> it's not impossible. It's not impossible these days. Uh, that said, why don't we hop right in and not waste any time? What do you say? Yeah, I'm ready to get into it. All right. So who want, do you want to read uh, chapter 34? Do you want to read this? <laughs> That's a tough one, but yeah, I think I can do this one. All right. God created Arrakis to train the faithful Mm. from the wisdom of Muad'Dib by the princess Irulan. God created Arrakis to train the faithful. I suppose he did because, boy, it is uh, full of trials and tribulations. Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah. I think so. That's a good word. Mm. Um, we we talked about that a good bit last time. How much you know the 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 actual landscape itself, the conditions themselves of Arrakis, how that has shaped and created the Fremen culture. And I think that's that's what he's talking about here. It's what he's getting at is this idea that uh, Arrakis shaped the Fremen and shaped the way they see the world and the way they operate, and that has made them just so much more devoted and fierce and and. Something to be something to be feared. <laughs> like these conditions are what have made them what they are. Absolutely. Now I haven't brushed up on my uh, Judeo-Christian uh, morality uh, as of late. That said, God creating the uh, Rakis to train the faithful is an interesting brings up an interesting question because one of the things we're going to see in this chapter is Jameis's funeral, which leans to James, which le- which leads to pardon me Jameis's water. And uh, I don't know how uh, I don't know how uh, God Almighty would feel about Jameis's water. It's curious considering the chapter heading and what's about to happen. You know, this idea of uh, we're sort of cannibalizing him in a sense. Yeah, yeah, for the good of all. For the good of all, indeed. And um, we start in on Jameis's funeral. You know, last time we met, the last thing that happened was, of course, Paul defeated Jameis in a duel in which Jameis challenged him and. Um, and back and forth they went, slashing to and fro, with uh, Jameis ending up dead. And uh, we haven't seen um, we haven't seen what's going to be going then, other than one of the last things Paul remembers. Uh, one of the last things that happens to Paul last time was that he had this idea of this burning Atreides hawk crest and uh, a type of war banner waving. And uh, and what it could possibly mean for his future. He's having these visions are plaguing his mind. Right. And he's already kind of devoting himself to this idea of I can't let whatever this future is come to pass. I, I This can't happen. I That's cannot right. let this come to be because it's going to be so the way it looks, you know, so out of his control is what it seems like he's afraid of. Like this is going to get out of hand and I won't be able to, to stop it or turn it back after a certain point. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be the growing, like gnawing fear. Right. Right. And, um, and we're going to dive into some more. It, the good news is he's not going to have a lot of time to think about that stuff, is he? Because he's going to uh, continually fall down into the rabbit hole that is the, uh, the, the, the culture of the Fremen, especially as it relates to how this funeral is going to work and what it means for Paul. Um, we must remember that Paul is a boy of 15, I believe, and you're a boy of 15 and you've killed a man. And your father has dead. And we've, we're fond of saying that he rarely gets a moment to, ta- to stop and reflect. I guess he reflects quite a bit. Maybe it's better to say he rarely gets a moment to mourn. Uh, between reflection and survival, there's not much time for mourning, it seems. And he gets his little moments of uh, wet-faced, tear moments. Of course, that's going to come up in this chapter, which is a very uh, important moment. And, uh, and we see that, uh, this continues these, these big changes come to this lad as he is forced, uh, through the meat grinder that is, uh, to become a grown up in the most rapid and quick and dirty way. Absolutely. I, I, I love when it, when it comes to that, thinking about how Paul, you know, this is how this is shaping Paul, this whole experience and like what, what his, you know, what I find interesting about that is that a lot of what Paul is going to encounter for the first time, all of his firsts for the rest of his life, um, are, are going to be in this new, this whole new condition of being a renegade, you know, house, and yep. and th- all the things he's going to have to go through are are so different from what his mother ever thought he was going to have. And I love, I love in the early part of this chapter, Jessica noticing Chani, yes, and really starting to think about her and being like, Paul must be cautioned about their women. One of these desert women would not do as a wife to a duke, as concubine, yes, but not as a wife. And then she starts to even think about like the contradictory nature of that thought because she was a concubine. Um, but I just love I love her noticing that it's like okay, like Paul still hasn't experienced romance before. Like he's still a boy, he's still a teenager, and mm. now we're in this new, deadly new world that is completely new to the both of us. And I, I got to give him the talk, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting because there still seems to be this idea in Jessica's mind that House Atreides will be restored, that there is in fact royalty to return to, that he will still take a place somewhere in what is considered proper Atreides culture, right? Or even Imperium culture. Not really considering that they could be here for a long time and that there's nothing left to return to, or so it seems, as far as we know. And yet she still holds out this reflex of he must have a proper wife. He must, uh, the idea of maintaining this royal uh, prerogative, as it were. Yeah. It's interesting. That she holds on to that. And and Jessica has a lot of thoughts in the early parts of this chapter, doesn't she? She considers um, the awareness that's starting to come to her, the sensing the daylight leaving them. Uh, It's something that she, she notes is akin to Fremen awareness, and their ability to sense the slightest change in something as simple as moisture. Um, I love that she starts to realize that that awareness is coming to her. The more time they spend out here, the more she puts the little dots in her character sheet to represent that she's uh, training in their ways, so to speak. <laughs> Racking them up. Absolutely. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's interesting to think back on Caladan, isn't it? Because we were on Caladan 30-something chapters ago, and we've yet to go back. <laughs> the yeah. book is called Dune, so I would imagine we're going to spend time on Dune and probably not Caladan. But 
I like that Caladan arrive. I like that we visit Caladan as a memory. And what better world for these people to be considering, Jessica especially, as she's lived there for many, many years, supposedly, that she uh, is thinking of uh, moonlit waves, white robes, rocks, wind with dampness, humidity, uh, you know, in a, in a time of dryness and thirst and burned skin that's exposed to the sun and irritating nose plugs and, and on the uncomfortableness of your steel suit, which you still haven't quite adjusted to yet because you're still too, as, uh, as uh, Liette was fond of saying, water fat, right? Yeah. You, you haven't quite <laughs> too burned. Soft. Too soft. And, you, and you know, it's, it's interesting that the, these, these steel suits are fitted with that idea of dehydration in mind. And uh, I love that, you know, I love, I love that she's just all of the discomfort she's feeling on top of everything else going through her head and all of the things that she has to consider at any second all the time. And this is one of the advantages, you know, where we cover movies and TV shows mostly. That's what we do. One of the advantages of books is knowing that all of these things rest on her mind simultaneously and what kind of stress that must place on her. Yet she still has this straight-backed regalness to her, right? Straight-backed, I think, is how they describe Lady Fenring. But this straight-backed regalness sort of exists in Jessica as well, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, like you were saying earlier, that that is very much so what she is, I think, holding on to. And, you know, her Bene Gesserit training, her, the, the traditions that she has really won for herself as being, a, you know, a non-royal and a concubine, um, that she's not going to give up all of that essentially success and what she's earned you know for this like she wants paul and wants him to to understand that and know that part of himself indeed and uh, and all this is broken up by cheney telling us hey they're recovering Jameis's water now it's a rule the flesh belongs to the person but his water belongs to the tribe except in the combat ah except in the combat and we learn that because you're fighting in the open without still suits, you're sweating, you're losing precious moisture, that of course the winner's going to get his rights to the water back he loses whilst fighting. Right. And Sweat expended. Think of how disturbing of a thought that must be for a boy of 15. Put yourself, if you can, Matthew, in Paul's shoes for just a moment. You are still reeling from the fact that you killed a man. You're 15. It's probably a shattering, uh, it probably has a shattering effect on your psyche. One that, again, much like your mother, you haven't had time to process. You haven't had time to process what has happened. And you're feeling a way about it. And now there's a ceremony kind of happening rather quickly. And we know that his water is going to be yours. Which means, if you can allow your 15-year-old imagination to run wild... That yeah. they're throwing this man in some kind of meat grinder and, the, and they're going to juice him into a nice little uh, <laughs> mason's jar for you, <laughs> essentially. Exactly. And they're going to hand it to you and say, drink up, son. You did good. I mean, what is going through your head? Dude, you're, you're mortified. <laughs> of <laughs> like, course, of course. Nobody wants this. And this is, you know, something I feel like there was even a, a moment in earlier chapters where some um, – uh, Atreides' soldiers even said something about that they had heard rumors of of the Fremen doing this to people. Like rumors have gotten out about what the Fremen do to their dead. Yes, this was um, an early chapter where they're eating with uh, when they, when they're eating at the uh, dinner table, and uh, everyone's trying. 
uh, everyone's, you know, subtly insulting everyone, specifically uh, Pardo Kynes, right? Pardo, uh, no, yes. not, yeah, yeah. Or Liet Kynes. Liet Kynes, and he's like, all of a man's water, <laughs> right? They're blood <laughs> drinkers. They're calling them blood drinkers. And that's when he corrects me. He says, no, 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 not blood, all of their water. All of it. They call them blood drinkers. That's what people think of as Fremen. They drink blood in the night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> A couple of amps. But no, like, exactly. And like the, the rumors have circulated back that far. So there has been this already just kind of like ominous distrust and fear of how the Fremen handle their dead. Like that is something that's like gained mysticism around, around it for everybody else. Um, and I can't imagine just how mortified Paul must, must be at this thought. And he can't even help himself. Like we've seen how, how trained and how focused Paul can be, you know, way beyond his age and maturity and ability. Mm. Um, but I love how in this moment he can't help but be a teenager who's just like, he literally says he mutters, I don't want his water. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't want his water. <laughs> Fucking God, it. it sounds like a nightmare. No, I don't want it. Right. To which uh, Cheney re- retorts, it's water. Right, and, and I like how Jess, yeah, and I like how Jessica marvels at the use of water here, uh, right? And and she just says with the voice, more or less, "You're going to accept the water, Paul," because Mom has the benefit of not having the emotional weight upon her that Paul does. Now, of course, her son has killed a man. I'm sure there's something weighing on her conscience, but not like the man who killed the man, right? Yeah. There's a lot more in Paul's mind, and because of that, Jessica can clearly think. He's not understanding the importance of water out here, is he? Remember, yeah. it's very not precious. It is yeah. not to be trifled with. Uh, water is everything. Water is life. Right. And it's such a it's such a moment between the two of them where you're like, thank God Jessica's there. Like she sure. it remind and we talk about this at other at other times too. Like it really reminds you that Jessica's the adult. Yes. Um because it's easy, like I feel like in prior chapters when we really get Paul coming into his prescient awareness and the overwhelming nature of it and how much he can see and process at one time, you just kind of, at least for me personally, I was like for a moment thinking like, well, is Paul just so beyond Jessica now that like she can't even relate to him anymore? And like, she's, you know, they, they, the, the relationship as parent and child have been, has been like destroyed because of his knowledge. But no, <laughs> we, we see a, a perfect example of it here of like, he may have all of that, but he is still a teenager who is not as honed as, as she is. Um, and she catches on very quickly. And, and like you said, uh, about her using the voice, one of the things I love about the voice in this, in this usage of it is the way it affects Paul. Paul remained silent knowing that when he would, that he would do as she ordered, not because she ordered it, but because her tone of voice had forced him to reevaluate. An important distinction, right? Right. Like she, it basically, forced him to rethink it just one more time. It was such a compelling weight. The words carry such compelling weight that he could, he, he, he had to reevaluate. It's, it's an interesting, right. And then come to the decision on his own. Right. 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 Because the decision is going to have a lot more power (laughs) cause he's made it. Mm -hmm. It's funny because, you know, we're thinking, well, water is life and et cetera. From, from water does all life begin. One of the, uh, uh, UA's OC Bible quotes is comes up here. But also Jessica is a, uh, she's a politician in a sense. She's a Benny Jezera first and foremost, which means she is very savvy politically. And it's not just about that. It's about power. Arrakis, water is money. That means power. Yeah. It's not just, hey, yeah. we can survive. It's like, we'll take as much excess as possible because we understand what it means 
from a from a currency standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's everything. It, it's everything. But um, you know this uh, <laughs> this is uh, this this quickly moves to the funeral moment. It's time, Stilgar says. His voice kind of rings out in the cavern, and and they just begin with this funeral ceremony. Yeah, come, Usul. <laughs> We're all still calling him Usul. Yeah, and uh, it's cool. He says Jameis's weapon has been killed. Jameis has been called by him by Shai Halud who has ordained the phases of the moons that daily wane and in the end appear as bent and withered twigs. Fucking cool. And this silence falls across the cavern and then it begins and the friends of Jameis approach. And, and I like this, I like the idea of this ceremony. You know, the rustling of robes and people kind of moving across and they start their thing. And, and you know, Jessica's hoping Paul gets it. We, we don't want to offend these people. We are part of their tribe now. And, uh, and Cheney has to kind of pull Jessica away and say, you know, come Sayadina, we must sit apart. This is for Paul to figure out. And he gets very little, very on-the-job training here, very little supervision on this. <laughs> they really do kind of shove him out. And I like this. I like, you know, post-come Usul, it becomes a question of watching Paul fighting through all the emotions that are running through his mind right now whilst also watching people and then mimicking those people and going, okay, I know I have to do this. I know this is something I have to do. And people get up there and they start talking about him. And one of my favorite parts of this chapter, Matt, is we thought of Jameis as rash and, and antagonistic and difficult. And and all we're hearing is reverence for the man. Now, yeah. I know that's very common, <laughs> especially by today's standards. Like, oh, he was a saint on earth. Yeah, he was a piece of shit, wasn't he? <laughs> Right, <laughs> just because he's dead, come on. But you know this, and and it's usually those empty platitudes that you see in some services where there's no real. It's just generic love is family, blah blah blah. You know, but this gets very specific, and I love it. When the hawk plane stooped upon us at Hole in the Rock, it was Jameis pulled me to safety. One of the Fremen says, "Right, yeah." No, I love this. I love that. It, it's a. It's an invitation for people to stand and say, I am a friend of Jameis. And, and then to, to yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, well, then to to claim an item of his um, and, and do so in remembrance of him. And they bring up all of these specific examples of how Jameis was, was brave or helpful or kind, that he shared his water, that he mm-hmm. did these things. Like, it's, it really is this, it's very stoic, but it is like a celebration of life. Like, yes. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's great. And I like how Paul, this, this really gets into, it's rare that a science fiction book, and I might be saying this out of turn, but let's just go with it. It, <laughs> it appears as if it's rare for a science fiction book that there is some sort of duel where another person is killed. And then you're at that person, you, you, we get a scene where that person is being remembered and it, we watch you grapple with that as you realize that he was more than just an antagonist. And that's even good for the, for the reader. Like oh, yeah. I said, Jameis is just a guy. He's antagonistic. He's shouting challenges, kind of annoying. Going after our sweet boy, Paul, he's a grown man. Next thing you know, they're fighting. Paul beats him. And we go, cool, Paul beat that guy. <laughs> that guy kind of sucked. 
because we only know that guy as the guy that sucked that challenged Paul. We don't know anything about the man. And suddenly when we get this funeral rite, we start to see that Jameis was in fact a man. And more importantly, Paul gets to see that Jameis was in fact a man. And he has to reconcile with bringing death to somebody who's more than just a simple antagonist in a book. Right, right. I love that. That's a really great point. And there's there's so much here that is painted out that you know didn't have to be. Like I sure. feel like so many other writers would have made would have gone the easy path of allowing Jameis to be a pretty one dimensional character, a character who challenges Paul, and all of the internal struggle and strife and growth is from Paul's perspective of how he overcomes this first mortal challenge. Like that's pretty standard fare. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of then taking up the random guy who challenged him and then fleshing him out fully and using that as an opportunity to open up another window into their culture. Yeah. Um, and one which I think is really interesting because uh, Jessica has an observation, I believe, about it where she says, this is, this is jumping ahead slightly, but um, where she says, the meeting between ignorance and knowledge, between brutality and culture, it begins in the dignity with which we treat our dead. For sure. And I love that because, I mean, that's also often used as an example between the animal kingdom and the human. Like, you know, there are some, there are only some animals that even pay any mind to their dead at all. Sure. Um, you know, elephants remember where other elephants have died and where their bones are. They will visit them and mm-hmm. return to them. Um, crows essentially hold funerals for each other. Yep. Crows are actually intelligent enough to do that. Um, but it is, it's a rare thing in nature yes. for death to be something made apart from everything from everyday experience and to be set aside as like, this is a, a big moment they have died. Yeah. Especially um, a wild kingdom. You like I've seen, you know, you, we've all seen the things with the dogs and the caskets. That's fucking hard to watch. Like the dog is like, he's in there, he's in there and he's freaking out. But, um, it, but like, it's interesting from a, from an animal perspective, it's very, it seems to lack utility in a very unforgiving place. You have to keep moving or you're dead too, right? Right, right. But it does. It's almost like art, right? That's the other, that's the other seems to be one of the other separators between the animal kingdom and man is this, the creation of art for art's sake, right? Right, yeah. But, but I like that. I do like that she reflects upon this because dignity and uh, it, it's making her, you know, I think, I think the common, I think the common perception of the Fremen from the Imperium is very slated in very small amounts of knowledge that just gets perpetuated, as we've already indicated, blood drinkers. So we're coming from people who are calling kinds of blood drinker at a royal table that's supposed to be filled with people acting respectfully to to us seeing, wow, what reverence they have for their own dead. And it's interesting that we would think otherwise, right? That we'd be like, oh, they're probably just animals. They probably just throw them in a hole. You know, they probably eat them. <laughs> they probably drink their blood, which all, which the drinking of their blood stuff is true. So it's, I, I like that we're holding these two very opposing viewpoints of, wow, we cannibalize our, they cannibalize their dead. Oh, but also there's a lot of reverence here and it really matters. And I like that she's picking up on that and seeing past what would be in, considered by Imperium standards pretty disgusting. Right. Right, being able to see past it, I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. Because I mean, on on its face, the the, the heart of what's happening is shocking to us. Mm. Um, but we we see over time that it makes complete sense for their for their conditions and for these for their culture. That's right, um, and that it's and that it's not done, you know, like easily. Like it is, it is still a a big deal when somebody dies. It's not sure. like they just 
toss them into the you know like we were joking earlier but like hmm. they don't just toss them into a wood chipper that juices them like sure. obviously like there's there's so much more care involved we see that played out indeed we continue characterizing our guy Jameis. when our water went below minimum at the siege of two birds Jameis shared right some old timer says and that's the thing mm-hmm. you know and uh and, and now now paul is feeling pressure am i supposed to say he was a friend do they expect me to make to take something from that pile they do and he doesn't know what to do and um and i love that uh, it gets to a point where jessica steps in and it's <laughs> so an slick example. yeah it's great she just is like when when the spirit of spirits within him saw the needs of truth that spirit withdrew and spared my son a very honest take right it's interesting, yeah. Mm. The spirit of spirits within him saw the needs of truth. Um, that almost, in my mind, I almost read that as Jessica saying that, you know, in a, in a sense that she almost believes in this, some sort of destiny for Paul still. A hundred percent. And I think she knows these people do too, or at least Stilgar does. Right. She kind right. Of, they're, they're believing it. It's a bold move, and I think she's kind of playing the room a little, though, because I think she knows, because of the Missionario Protectivo, what's going on here. She has that. To oh, kind of, that's a good point. Right. She has that yeah. to fall back on a little bit. That's a really good point. Yeah. That's something we have to remember. Right. Um, Cause I, I, I still forget that sometimes that Jessica has not obviously with the minutia because that gets shaped of by course. the people themselves over time, but the overall structures of some of the traditions they come across with the Fremen, she's familiar with, like she is genuinely familiar with how that looks at least on paper, you know, of like, Oh yeah, that's how, that's in the Minishinari Protectiva. They've adopted this one. I can go down that path now. Yep. But uh, yeah, she sees that pretty clearly. And yeah, you're right. Like, I love that she has this moment of stepping up and, and, and saying her little piece of truth there because of giving an example to Paul of like, step forward, do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Let me show you. I think she, um, exactly. And I think she knows that if he sees her go up, then he has to know he has to go up. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Like, if I'm doing it, you're doing it, kid. <laughs> and, dude, I I love this line. I, I got to read it. Um, it's when Paul does actually go ahead and Yeah, this and is decide. a great moment. <laughs> when, yeah, when he decides to step into the circle um, and he gets into his feet. He says, Paul felt the diminishment of his self as he advanced into the center of the circle. It was as though he lost a fragment of himself and sought it here. Mm. I fucking love that and part part of what i love about it is i still don't quite know what it all means or could mean um but there's something about it that i that i took as this is paul stepping further into his destiny Mm -hmm. like taking the plunge into the culture going a little further into the fremen culture and and being getting deeper into it basically and that that further pushed him down the the destiny he's afraid of and he can feel himself like dissolving into it <laughs> if that makes any it sense it does of, like, no it does of like his control over it already starting to dissolve like he 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 him thinking of himself less as an individual and almost becoming formed into the fremen and their destiny and like uh i, I just find it fascinating i like that it's very much a dune it seems it's very dune appropriate observation i was thinking of it from a psychological standpoint insofar as that he feels the diminishment of his self as he advances in the center of the circle as though he lost a fragment of himself and sought it here. I think as you're walking towards a pile of belongings of a man you killed, you start to realize I've lost a piece of myself in killing this man, right? And perhaps I can find it amongst the stuff in here. 
Ah, that's also a great reading of that. Right. And, yeah. and, and him picking up the ballast. I also love that it's a ballast because that ties it back to Gurney and he, he has these complicated right. thoughts about, will I see him again? Is he dead? What? And, and he picks up the ballast set, which of course, as he does it, it, it plucks a string on a piece of fabric and, and he whispers, I was a friend of Jameis. And, uh, and, uh, Jameis taught me that when you kill, you pay for it. I wish I'd known Jameis better. And when you kill, you pay for it. This is that onslaught of emotion that I think he started to feel as he walked towards the pile of this man's stuff. That was all that was left of him. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and he, and he, he cries. I mean, he has tears in his eyes and this boy, does this get a reaction? He sheds tears, gives moisture to the dead. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and Jessica's like, this is great. This is right. wonderful. It was a gift of the shadow world. Tears, they would be sacred beyond a doubt. Nothing on this planet had so forcefully hammered into her the ultimate value of water. Not the water cellars, not the dried skins of the natives, not still suits or the rules of water discipline here. There was a substance more precious than all others. It was life itself and entwined all around it with symbolism and ritual. Water. Right. Good. So he's got, good. What's that? I said, it's just so good. Yeah. I mean, the water <laughs> on his face, people touching it and he starts to get a little overwhelmed and, you know, they, they end this ceremony with a, with a chant and, uh, it goes, uh, full moon calls thee, shy halud shalt thou see, red the night, dusky sky, bloody death, didst thou die. We pray to a moon, she is round, luck with us will then abound. What we seek for shall be found in the land of solid ground. And uh, that's it. We, we learn about how much water he's going to get. Um, Chani blesses it in the presence of Sayadina. She says some, uh, some crazy uh, Chikopsa or Fremen, as it were, over the top of it. <laughs> and I like this, man. It's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty awesome. And of course, there's a little, uh, <laughs> a little faux pas where he's like, what am I going to do with all this water? Uh, <laughs> I must accept this water. And he's like, will you yeah. help me carry it? And of course we learn that, well, you don't want to say that just yet unless you're trying to marry this girl. <laughs> unless you're trying to marry this one. Yeah. Dude, the, the, so interesting that, that, that they have these little, like I'm trying to picture them almost like these ringlets to measure water down to the most just like precise mm. milliliter. Yeah. It's so interesting. We're going to learn a lot about the, uh, from precision coming up here. Yes, when it yes. comes to water. But um, but I love this. Uh, Silgar, uh, you know, it, this, this, this proceeded as well as, it, as anyone could have hoped. Right, right. right? And, that, and that Paul, Paul in, a, in a way, stepped up and stepped up into, you know, a difficult spot. And I think Stilgar was, you know, aware of the difficulty for Paul that this would be. Like, I love that he doesn't, there's no winks or nods to to mm -hmm. Paul. There's no trying to help him along. But I think Stilgar understands that this is a pretty difficult place for him to adapt to in this moment. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and the troop moves on and, and uh, they go through, I believe it's described as a yellow rock wall, an outcropping, and the wall swung soundly away from him, him being Stilgar. Opening along an irregular crack, he led the way through past a dark honeycomb lattice that directed a cool wash of air across Paul when he passed it. And there's this moment where Paul says that air feels damp and moisture and a wind trap. And what's going on in here? There's moisture in here. There's sealing doors. Uh, it's clearly 
it's clearly detectable in here. You know, that feeling, if you've ever gone, we've all know the feeling of going from air condition into humidity. <laughs> Just imagine that feeling of going from an arid climate directly into something that is moist and uh, what that would feel like, the, the relief you must feel on your skin as they go deeper down into this area. <laughs> Paul says he felt he's seen this place in a dream, Matthew, and it was reassuring yet frustrating. And, um, and frustrating because the green and black Atreides banner would become a symbol of terror, he thinks again, while legions would charge into battle screaming, Muad'Dib. <laughs> and I love this also, the moment that ends it, where he, he thinks that nothing less than the deaths of all the troop gathered here and now, himself and his mother included, <laughs> could stop the thing. That, it's ar- that, that he's already a little ways down the path. Like sure. he's already a rock starting to tumble down the hill. It's already begun. Yep. Um, boy, yeah, it's such an overwhelming. Like I, I just think the book paints Paul's fear of this future and his destiny as so overwhelming. It paints that very, very well and, and, and like vividly. And it puts the reader in a tough spot, doesn't it? Because we're like, well, wait a minute. I don't think we want everyone we know and love to die. And <laughs> <laughs> though something bad might come about. I mean, it's, I mean, as crappy as it is to think of, you know, uh, terror reigning under the Atreides Black Banner, it also sounds like a really cool metal video that I wouldn't <laughs> mind watching, right? <laughs> sounds like a badass Romstein music it, video. It absolutely does, right? But uh, I like this description of Jessica feeling the dry pulling of skin on her cheeks and forehead, relaxing in the presence of moisture. That is a great description and a subtle description of just your very face feeling rejuvenated at the air quality in this place. Yeah, yeah. The, the sense of relief, instantaneous mm. relief. And, and uh, think of the absurdity of, 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 of this sentence. A splashing sounded on her left. What? Splashing? Enough water to splash. Is that she what you're might, telling she, me? <laughs> she may not have heard that much splashing since Caladan. <laughs> exactly. That's what I, well, maybe when they were in the, but, but yeah, otherwise, since being out here, the idea of hearing a splash must be so out of place. You know how you associate sounds and or even smells with places, and when something's out of whack, it's just so surprising. Yeah. But this one must be such a refreshing sound to hear. You know, it's funny. We keep talking about, you know, the, the idea of, uh, of, of drinking water. You know, the, the classic, oh, I'm in a desert. It's a mirage. We need water. We're drinking water. We just keep thinking of the sustenance of drinking water. We don't think of the excitement it would be to hear water often. Like just yeah. the sound of a roaring river. You're like, yes, this is the best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> But this is, as you were saying earlier, Matt, we get into the superb accuracy in water measurement that the Fremen seem to have. Yes. So they, we also come to learn here that they are gathering a ton of water. A ton. Um, a ton of water. Like so far I've, more than anybody ever would have thought. So I have done the numbers. I've, I've, I've done a little math for this chapter. And, uh, and I did that because I was curious if we could visualize what this looks like just to give you an idea as to what kind of water we're dealing with. They say at some point in this chapter, 38 million decaliters. That equals approximately 100 million gallons. (laughs) Wow. Which 
an Olympic sized swimming pool is 660,000 gallons. So you're talking about two Olympic sized swimming pools. Uh, not even close. Way more than that. Like, think of how much water. It's like a lake. Yeah. That's like a, that is like a small lake at that point. I feel like my numbers are wrong, but I double checked them. If we, if you look up 38 million deciliters, and how many million gallons that equals? It's a fucking lot. It's a hundred million gallons, of which That's a half a, a million, just a half a million, will round down. An Olympic pool is half a million. God. So, two hundred Olympic pools? It's not my math. I mean, holy <laughs> shit! That's fucking insane. It's crazy insane. to think about. And this and, is such a profound moment in this book of Revelation for everyone. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Nobody, nobody could have ever suspected that the Fremen not only had access to that much water, mm. but are, are essentially containing and controlling it. Yep. Uh, that's, it's just mind-blowing. <laughs> water flowing off the walls without binding tension. She saw a profound clue to Fremen tech. We also learn as they're walking through this area that um, uh, she noted the withdrawn look in Paul's eyes, but the mystery of this great pool of water dominated her thoughts. There were those among us in need of water, he said, yet they would come here and not touch this water. Do you know that? And she says, I believe it. We have more than 38 million deciliters here, 38 million deciliters, walled off from the little makers, hidden and preserved, a treasure trove, of course. And we have to remember that when you think of Olympic swimming pool, we're thinking of how much, how like wide that might be, right? But maybe a lot of this is deep. Smaller surface yeah. area because maybe it's deeper, right? Just to right. just to help you visualize this without it seeming completely ludicrous. Like how big is this area? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of it's flowing underneath, right? Yeah. Well, dude. Also, this is this is the part where we we come to to realize that Stilgar truly is in line mm. with Kynes' vision of what Arrakis is going to be. Absolutely. Um, like it is now confirmed that yeah, they they want to terraform this entire planet. That's right. He even says we will trap the dunes beneath grass plantings. We will tie the water into the soil with trees and undergrowth. We shall make a home world of Arrakis with melting lenses at the poles, with lakes in the temperate zones, and only the deep desert for the maker and his spice. Hold on, you didn't do the appropriate. Bilal Kaifa. <laughs> Bilal Kaifa. They all so, chanted. Right, but so so that so now it starts to make sense you start to think of how much water we're talking about and exactly why because we're trying to irrigate the desert yeah so mm. much desert what do you think of that what do you think of that line walled off from the little makers um yeah i'm getting really curious about that um the little makers and his spice I don't know what the fuck that means yet. <laughs> um, I have to imagine my stab is that it has something to do with the worms. Ah. Like we, we already have confirmation that they are pretty intimately connected to the worms because they ride the motherfuckers. <laughs> so there's that. Um, yeah. Like uh, there's got to be more of a relationship there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're onto something there, but we won't spoil it. But this was a dream to capture men's souls, and she could sense the hand of the ecologist in it. This was a dream for which men would die willingly. It was another of the essential ingredients that she felt her son needed, people with a goal. Such people would be easy to imbue with fervor and fanaticism. They could be wielded like a sword to win back Paul's place for him. 
You know, I got to say, talk about when, it, it. <laughs> when it comes to word association, the words fervor and fanaticism mm. really leapt off the page at me when I remember so many times Paul's vision has been described as a, a fear of a wild jihad. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. With, a, with under the Atreides banner flapping in the wind. Exactly. <laughs> like a oh Metalocalypse episode. <laughs> and then when Jessica says they would be great because of all the, how easy it would be to imbue them with fervor and fanaticism. I'm like, oh shit. Like you, <laughs> you are leading to that destiny. Like that's and, absolutely what. And I think the ta- I think on the I think the tag on that paragraph is very important because she says to win back Paul's place for him. So this gets back to something we were talking about earlier, which was her the way she felt about Cheney, right? Not a proper person for you to wed. A concubine, right. sure, you can fuck her, but we need you to marry some. So there's still a vision here for Jessica because Jessica, I don't think, is thinking. I want to live like a Fremen till the end of my days. No. <laughs> She's thinking, I'd like to go back to the confines of a nice uh, castle in the Imperium. Wouldn't that be nice to have the tra- house treaties restored and justice meted out to the evil Baron? I'm sure that's completely what she's thinking, and that's I'm getting a reason reasonable- to the dirt floor of my tent. That's yeah. great and all, but uh, California <laughs> King feels pretty good. California King feels pretty nice with a glass of water on my bedstand that I didn't <laughs> that have I to knock over in the middle of the night, and I don't even give a shit about it. <laughs> and I didn't have to kill a man with a Chris knife to get. I just went over to the cooler and hit the little button. It was great. I'm fucking royalty, bitch. Damn. And and you see it for your son. You do you want your son to live like this, right? It's one thing for us to be like, ah, what are you doing, Jessica? But it's another thing to be like, well, it's her son. She wants him to be safe. She doesn't want him to live like a renegade forever, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and she has this moment, this this real intense moment of these people can help win this back for him. And I don't even know if she's thinking of it and be like a sacrifice. I think she's just thinking what a match made in heaven. Right. Right. <laughs> and I love it. it is, she truly is royalty. Um, because when she's talking about the fact that Kynes' influence has grown so much over them, mm. you know, that they, that they want to terraform the planet and that they are a people with a goal, you know, uh, she says they have their mountain to climb, that this is the scientist's dream. And these simple people, these peasants are filled with it. <laughs> uh, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't help but find that really funny. Absolutely. Um, but she, cause yeah, she sees them, you know, you, I think you highlighted it best, sees them as the sword to be wielded. Indeed. Um, Paul's sword specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think she knows something about fervor and fanaticism when it comes to running a house and making sure you get the buy-in hearts and minds, right? There you go. <laughs> yeah. Where do we end with this? So, uh, through it all, the wild jihad still loomed ahead of him, the violence and the slaughter. It was like a promontory above the surf. The troop filed through the last door into the main cavern. Um, but yeah, they're just, they're just moving through. And, you know, some stuff with Cheney here, Paul walking behind her, thinking a vital moment had passed him, that he had missed an essential decision and was now caught up in his own myth. He knew he had seen this place before, experienced it in a fragment of prescient dream on faraway Caledon, but the details were being filled in now that he had not seen it. I like that. I like that. I like the idea of the fragments or even uh, 
I just imagine visualizing the fragments of this, like parts of the room are black and white. And as he walks in, they start to turn to color because he's only going off a very fragmented vision of it. Right. Mm, yeah. I like and, that. and he starts to see the details that were missed in the dream as they were sort of fleeting. Dude, as, as a quick aside there, I, I am so curious about how they're going to visualize these moments in particular sure. in the movie. I'm sure. Like, how are they going to go about that? That feels like one of the most difficult, but also possibly amazing, rewarding aspects right, to right. try and adapt. Yeah, for, for a point of order here, it's September 9th, 2021, as we're recording this episode. So we, uh, we're still over a month away from the film's release. Yeah, indeed. Mm. But no, the way the way this chapter ends, I I found really great. Um, Paul talking about his the stark thought dominating his awareness that my mother <laughs> is my enemy. Stark. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy. Yeah. Boy, I I did not expect to, for us to end at that place <laughs> in this chapter. Yeah, um, that Paul would be so sure of that. That Paul would be so sure of his mother's mm, essentially manipulation being part of what's pushing him down towards his, you know, his wild jihad destiny. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and it's interesting because he sees, you know, right before that, he's singing a song to Cheney, which has a lot of love overtone in it, and it concerned Jessica again. Back to the concern, Jessica has this very precise idea of what she thinks Paul's path should be or ought to be. And uh, that's going to be dangerous when you're dealing with somebody who is not interested in your shoulds or oughts, especially as I become a man and they want to exercise their own destiny. Uh, again, we're also dealing with things beyond our control, Benny Gesserit and breeding programs and, and uh, prophecies, etc. But yeah, the fact that he sits in that darkness and considers that his mother is his enemy and that she doesn't even know it herself, I think is awesome, right? Yeah. She doesn't, yeah. he doesn't, and that's what I like about it. He doesn't think of it as, you know, <laughs> this gets back to a lot of the, like the useful idiot stuff, right? When you think uh, back with Stalin, the useful idiots, they, they <laughs> could have been enemies, but they didn't even know they were. They were just useful idiots, right? And that's, it's wild to think about this. She has no fucking clue, like what she's doing puts her on a collision course with Paul, or at least for him to see you're my enemy. And, uh, right. and that's what I believe at this point. And it doesn't even necessarily mean, you know, to be vanquished. He's just making a note. Right. Right. Exactly that. Like I'm going to have to, if I want to oppose my terrible purpose, mm. I'm going to have to oppose my mom <laughs> in certain ways. In, indeed. As, as we've seen, they have, very different visions of what's going on here. He's thinking of visions of, of, of jihad and massacre. She's thinking of, of visions of reclaiming that which is to be his. And uh, he's also coming to grips with killing a man and getting strange feelings for Cheney. And mom's kind of like got this eye on the prize mentality. Or at least she's thinking of what can be exploited here to her and her son's benefit. Right. Right. It's going to put them at odds. Mm. Well, Let's move over to chapter 35. Indeed. The concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Ooh. 
Progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I like how I like how it specifically says the concept of progress. <laughs> Indeed. Um, uh, to me, implying the idea that like that is a concept used by some <laughs> as a protective mechanism <laughs> to shield us from the terrors of the future they are hastily creating. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I will boy. That's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> so um this is a we we have we haven't seen our buddies in a while matthew we haven't seen our friends the harkonnens and god love them we are back in action with the harkonnens and boy did i miss them deeply i knew we were back in action with the harkonnens as soon as i hit the term slave gladiator <laughs> i was like all right well we are not in a trading territory anymore <laughs> we're back with the heroes of the story <laughs> the good guys oh man so it's fade's birthday and he's gonna kill a man <laughs> so <laughs> he's gonna kill a guy I, I think this is very important contrast to uh the chapter prior because oh, paul reconciles with killing a man and here we have fade killing a man uh, with with all the reverence and glee you would expect from a harkonnen <laughs> exactly um, but this is great this is a great setup this is so visual to me the way it's described uh, visiting observers from the imperial court a count and lady fenring we're on the Harkonnen homeworld of Gidi Prime for the event, invited to sit that afternoon with the immediate family in the golden box above the triangular arena in honor of the Na, of the Nay Baron's nativity and to remind all Harkonnen and subjects that Fade Rautha was heir designate. It was holiday on Gidi Prime. <laughs> so... All the hoopla on the Harkonnen homeworld. All of the hoopla that comes with a reminder that this will be the one who eventually, uh, the heir. We're celebrating the heir. This is almost like a name day, so to speak. Here he is. He's going to be the guy. Let's celebrate him and all his glory. And there's so many underpinnings in this that make it interesting. One of the most important is the way Fenring immediately notices how there is guards everywhere. The areas around this great keep are, are trash. There are checkpoints everywhere. Fearful protection is in place. Why? Well, like with most dictators, we see the misery outside, right? And I don't even know if I would call Baron Harkonnen a dictator insofar as he's like a uh, Kim Jong Il type, but more, but more that his excess, his excess expenditures to do what he had to do to secure fiefdom of Arrakis has put him in a spot where he's uh, struggling to keep everything just outside of the keep walls intact. Right, right, right. And you also just got to imagine that he is somebody who has like no patience for the common man. <laughs> like, Abs- absolutely. No- you know his taxes don't have any wiggle room. That's for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. And um, and it's all shoddy. The illusion of gaiety. Banners flew from buildings. New paint splashed on walls. A real, a real patch them up. The the friends are coming over. Move. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Kicking trash into the couch. <laughs> exactly right. And then you and then you have that feeling. Oh, do we need the bathroom? Shit, we didn't do the bathroom. Just get in there and just shoot some spray in there. Light a candle. 
<laughs> but I love that idea of fearful protection, checkpoints, uh, men marching on, and uh, that 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 noticement by Fenring to say the Duke is uh, the Baron is just beginning to see the price he paid to rid himself of Duke Leto. <laughs> and I love I love the speech pattern. It's of the so weird. It's so weird. And at first, I, it took me, I had to go back to this moment to where it first says, you know, the first line we get from the count where he says the pressure's on, and then he goes on to, you know, to say what you just read. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says the count hummed to his lady in their secret language. Yes. Um, and that's, you know, I, I, I pieced it together later of like, oh, his seeming stutter, his, his hesitations, his hemming and hawing, his, his kind of mushmouthery that comes mm-hmm. in later is both purposeful and there's a secret language that he possesses between him and Lady Fenring. Very cool. All um, code. So, so fucking cool. Um, and also, we got to remember, this is the same Lady Fenring that helped out uh, Jessica. Yes. Who left the note behind in the, in the, the secret, like, um, plant room. <laughs> Whatever yes. you would, that would be called. Which, which, we, which, which we confirm Fenring, Lady Fenring is, in fact, a Benny Gesserit. So there's a little bit of a sisterhood there. Exactly. Yeah. But they're in this great reception hall. They gather. Um, and about 40 meters by 20 is as it's described. And uh, just a description of the, mar- the Baron moving down the length of the hallway, a waddling glide imparted by the necessities of guiding suspensers. Jowls bobbed up and down. Suspensers jiggled. And, um, <laughs> and uh, he just kind of rolls in and... Uh, t- uh, contrasted by Fade, who seemingly is an attractive guy. He's dark hair, close, close ringlets that seemed incongruously gay above sullen eyes, uh, tight-fitting a black tunic and snug trousers with a suggestion of a bell at the bottom. Are they talking about his penis? <laughs> I thought it was the bell-bottom pants. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> not, 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 the, uh, not the bell head. Lady Fenry, noting the young man's poise and the sure flow of muscles beneath the tunic, thought, here's one who won't let himself go to fat. <laughs> but what a contrast, these two men, as they enter. And uh, introductions are made, and we see uh, what exactly, who are these people? Who is the Count Fenring and uh, the Lady Fenring? And she's a golden-haired willowy uh, her, perf- her perfection of figure clothed in a flowing gown of ecru, simple fitness of form without ornament. I love that descriptor. That is a great description. Gray green eyes stared back at him. She had that Benny Jesuit serene repose about her that young that the young man found subtly disturbing. <laughs> like she could fucking whip snap at any moment. In- indeed, indeed. But uh, yeah, this whole discussion, uh, it starts with pleasantries and uh, I told my nephew of the great esteem our emperor holds you in. That's something we learned that this guy's very close to the emperor. Right. And that's, that's the most key thing we come to find out that it doesn't seem like the count is a messenger for the mm. emperor, but he is sort of like almost his uno- unofficial, purposefully unofficial spokesperson. Uh, that he, you know, when when he needs to go in and talk about some shit that can't be said out loud. Exactly. Yeah, he's the conciliary. Exactly. Exactly. 
exactly. Yeah, and I, I, I love the way the Baron describes him as well. Where he <laughs> says, where he's thinking, mark him well, Fade, a killer with the manners of a rabbit. This is the most dangerous kind. <laughs> right. It's great. And I like how that, that comes right before Fade considering the man, looking at Fenring. A young, the young man focuses attention on the count. Small, weak, weaselish, overlarge eyes, gray at the temples. And his movements, he moved a hand or turned his head one way, then spoke another. It was difficult to follow. <laughs> How interesting to describe a man as such. It puts such an alienness to him, so un- inscrutable. And, and because of the Baron's warning, we know that probably many people have underestimated Fenring accidentally, considering him as nothing when he's the worst of them all. Right, right. Now, all of this is probably also extremely precise performance mm. to, to mislead and misguide I imagine that he is a person who knows how to do that and uses it well. Indeed. We've, we've been talking this entire podcast about deception as a weapon, and boy, the manners of a rabbit, yet a deadly killer, the worst kind. Or uh, That's, that's <laughs> nothing to be trifled with. But, but I like there's a lot of compliments going on. You know, the perfection of the boy, you're too kind. And when you mm, ironically suggest you're mm, thinking deep thoughts. And uh, <laughs> I like that, but... Uh, listening to the man gave Fade a, a feeling of his head being pushed through mush. I think that's an important descriptor. We've heard this a lot from Fade. Fade was bored in the very second chapter, was it? Yeah, that's right. right. He had a so boredom at, at the at the talk of strategy and in 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 how we will uh, how the complete eradication of the Atreides was going to go down and how plans within plans, and, and Fade just kind of was drifting. He was sort of losing his focus. And I like that we're seeing him get annoyed at the sound of Fenring. I like this because I think this highlights two important things. I think it highlights him, Fade, and what is and isn't important to him. This kind of shit doesn't really matter to him, right? He's not a schemer like the Baron. He's a, he's, a, he's an attractive sort of kid that comes from a very uh, privileged situation and he's got some martial skill and he just wants to, you know, there's, there's like a, it, it reminds me of almost like maybe a young Lestat. Like, I'm just here to kind of fuck off, right? I don't, oh, I'm not interested in your big schemes. And what I, what I love about it too is that it, it goes to show, I think, that the Count and the and Lady Fenring are both easily manipulating him oh yeah um <laughs> that's, because, the, that's you know, the part two i was going to get to right 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 and uh and sorry to jump on that no, no like, by all um, means go ahead but no i i think that we, we get proof here that he's you know, been manipulating uh, i'm sorry the count is manipulating fade because of he's already getting fade to write him off mm. <laughs> to, to just write him off to be like this guy's some weasel pussy i don't have to pay attention to him and he he stops um and then when it comes to lady finring she has him fucking around her pinky finger instantly, already. Of course. Instantly. And he even goes as far as to say, I shall make a kill for you this day, my lady. I shall make the dedication in the arena with your permission. <laughs> and she outright says, you do not have my permission. Exactly. Um, she's toying with him. Um, so they, they've got him under control really easily. And the Baron is like that imp. Like the Baron is wise. You know, he sees the mistake. He sees it a mile away. He could probably see it coming based off watching their interaction. And, um, and I'll tell you, one thing we have to remember that's important 
is the is the reason why the Fenrings are here. They're here because they're evaluating the heir. Because you cannot have a house heir without the emperor's buy-in. And, and the Fenrings are here to evaluate Fade. Yeah, yeah. He and must be, must be chosen. Indeed. And, and I'm sure Fade has been briefed on this reality. And uh, he still can't help being but who he is. And, uh, and here they are pushing his buttons and twisting him around to see if they can trip him up. <laughs> and they're doing a great job of it. <laughs> mm. And uh, and the count obviously the baron's concern was the count would take offense to this offering. This has a romantic overture, this type of thing, and and he's concerned. The baron's concerned, but the count only does his little mm, 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 weird noises <laughs> and smiles. Mm, right, uh, and this gets down to eventually, you know, the lady takes a hike, and. Um, before that, there's a, there's this this code again. Can that young man uh, be who the Reverend Mother meant? Is that a bloodline we must preserve? We've more than an hour before going to the arena. Perhaps we could have our little chat now. So she's already thinking there's something about this fade, and uh, but that gets kind of dismissed for now. We're going to come back to that, but we get the Baron going. Okay, let's get down to brass tacks here. Like all the pleasantries, all the nonsense. Why are you here? I know why you're here. You're the Emperor's errand boy, and you want to get something to me. And um, and let's see what's going to happen, since you haven't said it yet. And this is where he just tells him. Yeah, outright. The Count just comes and says, we're not satisfied with the way you ordered the Sardaukar off a of rack. Um, <laughs> number one. I love how the, <laughs> number one and the, also Mushmouth has disappeared. <laughs> yes. Like, He's back to business. By the way, do you um, like the uh, do you like the cone of silence technology? Yeah, that's really sick. Really right? neat. Yeah, they're in a Just thing. Just gives they... you a, a tent of silence, like an invisible tent of silence. I very, guess. very cool. <laughs> this is super cool. But yeah, no more mush mouth. He's straight talk, right? Right, right. And this is where we we get uh, the the Baron going into trying to defend himself about why the, the Sardaukar left. Mm. Um, because he says the Sardaukar could not stay any longer without risking that others would find out how the Emperor helped me. Seems like a legitimate thought from from the Baron, mm-hmm. right? But um, he in this in this kind of this pivots into what are we doing about the Fremen? We know that Raban is under orders to squeeze, not destroy, and that's important because as the Baron reminded Raban, listen, we have a lot of money to make up. And maybe we can use these Fremen or, or do something, squeeze the populace to not. <laughs> we need to make sure we do not just destroy this place because there's money to be had here. True. true. Right? We can't afford a cleanup. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's still, we get back to this thing that keeps occurring with the Baron, which is he, he seems to always overlook the Fremen anyway. Who says the Southern Desert is uninhabitable? Because that's just his assumption. Right. He goes on to say that Kynes is the one who told him that. Yeah. But, you know, he yeah. doesn't investigate it any further, doesn't confirm that. He's, he does seem very eager to just write off the Fremen from the jump. Right. And to go off what Dr. Kynes said, a man you betrayed, by the way, who, let's be real, probably had interests with the Fremen more than the Imperium at the, at the time of his death especially. But even before then, how honest could he have been? How do we know? You're just going off what he said or you're just... I, I think it comes down to uh, just a lazy oversight that we seem that seems to always plague the Baron when it comes to the Fremen. Yeah, yeah, just doesn't take them seriously. Yeah, 
and um, they get into this discussion about watching the planet from space, which apparently is not legal. It's not legal for the guild to be utilized in this way. Yeah, or at least, or at least that the the guild just doesn't do that. They just don't give permission mm. or uh, access to their. To oh their yeah, that's what it is, and it's the emperor cannot that. legally post watch on Arrakis. I believe is how it's said. I think that goes against the land shroud. Oh okay. I think I don't know because it just says the emperor cannot legally post a watch on Arrakis because that I guess that would make sense. I think you have to. I think there is this this idea that there has to be independence for these houses to operate without constant oversight right on the planet in your face all the time. Right, right. It's got to be some level of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the word I'm looking for. But, um, yeah, we learn that uh, there is evidence of plant life, that it was discovered by a smuggler. And um, smugglers should not navigate the southern reaches any better than Raban's men. Storms, sand, static, and all that, you know. But um, the count kind of wants to stray away from this talk about smugglers indicating plant life, to which the Baron just again is like, nah, I don't think so. He's like, they, how would they know? They don't know. He's like, well, <laughs> we'll, dis- we'll discuss this stuff another time. <laughs> yeah. And no, I love in, in this moment, too, that, that the Baron realizes, unlike Fade, he actually realizes when the count is trying to <laughs> manipulate him. <laughs> exactly. And trying to get his anger up, get him pissed off. Yeah, he says, like, when you imagine mistakes, there can be no self-defense. Right? I mean, he's kind of telling him, you know, you can make mistakes here, and there is no defense for said mistakes, and then you feel the wrath. And that's just him poking the Baron a little bit. I mean, to where he has to actually calm himself down. Right, right. Like, that's, I love how it's working, but he can still suppress it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because they're, they're talking about the death of the boy, the concubine, and fleeing into the desert and storms and the Count's like so many convenient accidents. Obviously, the Baron had, you have to remember, the Baron was motivated to cover up his traces a little bit. And that's very important because we learned how upset, or at least seemingly, that the Padishah Emperor was at the death of of Leto and things of this nature. But but the Baron always had this idea like, we're going to stamp out all the evidence because he's probably hedging his own bets. How can you not, how can you, if you're the Baron in this situation, you're involved in treachery and you're getting help from Shaddam himself and uh, in the Sardukar, you must also be thinking, I can be implicated in this right by them if they get sick of me. So why wouldn't I cover my own traces while I'm dealing with these Imperium, uh, with, with, uh, with the, uh, with the, with the, God damn it, with Shaddam, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Why yeah. would you leave all these loose ends? It makes sense from the Baron's perspective. And, and it makes sense why Shaddam is pissed that this is going on because maybe he wants those loose ends. Maybe there's more motivation in him for that. So yeah. many convenient accidents. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love... Not, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I love uh, that when the, when the Baron does finally threaten a little bit of violence, you know, implies that there could be violence. You know, the Count points out that you know, if anything happens to me here, all the great houses would learn what you did on Arrakis. Mm-hmm. They've long suspected how you do business. And I just love how the Baron is so good at parrying it back and forth because he immediately goes to, well, the only reason business I can recall was the transportation of several legions of Sardaukar to Arrakis. Yeah. See, that's why, he, that's why you depose of evidence or dispose of evidence because he can just simply say, oh, I ferreted them over. This coup was handled by the Sardaukar. 
Gidi, the, the, the Harkonnens are innocent in this. We did no wrong. The Sardaukar took over and they installed me as the, like, there's no, that you can't tie it back. That's how he's playing it in his head, right? And he can always hide behind being an inferior to the emperor. Of course. Like, hey, the emperor, hey, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say against him? Absolutely. Yep. And, uh, and I love that. And I love how, I love how a Fenring in here, he just kind of turns it back on saying, oh, okay, we can just blame it on undisciplined Sardukar. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and he even says that they can find, you know, Sardukar commanders who will totally say that they just acted without orders because they wanted a battle with your Fremen scum. Right. And, and even the Baron's like, come on, dude. I mean, <laughs> are they that disciplined? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> But no, uh, yeah, they, they, there's, there's a lot going on here. We know this is important because Fenring, as we've already discussed, has the ear of the emperor, and he is really digging at the Baron a little bit, trying to learn some stuff. And and even, I, I like how Baron's like, I'll burn the world. Like, let him bring a false accusation against me and, uh, and have it exposed. I shall stand there, Promethean, saying, behold me, I am wronged. Then let him bring any other accusation against me, even a true one in the great houses will not believe a second attack from an accuser once proved wrong, right? I like the yeah. idea of that. I like how he's suggesting, like, once I turn away the one and you try a second one, people will know you're full of it. And the land tried won't, ha- won't have it. Right. Almost playing off of a distrust the land Trotter probably already has of the emperor. Indeed. And, and I think that's something we should talk about a little bit because we know that they exist, the, the Council of the Great Houses. We know that Shaddam did what he did with the help of the Baron to depose a popular man, a man that was becoming a threat perhaps to the emperor. And, uh, and they probably, you know, there's probably lots of whisperings among some great houses are like, yeah, we know what's going on here, even if we can't prove it. And, uh, right. and that means that the emperor has to kind of be on his toes. He has to be careful. And when you go into business with a man like Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, you're opening yourself up for, to a man who, if you start to pick away at him, he'll bring the whole thing down. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It's a cool little uh, dynamic built in. That's something you, that's something you can always believe that Baron Harkonnen would do. Mm-hmm. You know, he is that spiteful and vindictive of a and, person. And clever enough to have set the table to make that a reality, Right. right? Exactly. That's that's a great way of summing up his character. I think of like he is a person smart enough. Like you know, it's been one of the main problems with so many adaptations of Dune that Baron is not portrayed as the fucking evil genius that he really exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, he's he's smart enough to lay the groundwork in his favor, um, and lost the train of thought for the second part. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I like I like how this conversation shifts back to. Why does Emperor want to exterminate the Fremen? And the Count doubles down. He doubled. He doubled down. Doubles down on what he just said a minute ago. He's like, "Oh, it's just those undisciplined Sardaukar wishing to." Right? I love that. I love that they just talked about it as a th- theoretical. Like, here's what we'll say. And when the Baron asks about the Fremen extermination, Fenring just goes right back to it. <laughs> he's like oh no no I it's a Sardaukar who wish it not the emperor right he says it. he's like we just set we just set this up a second ago they need to practice in killing and they hate to see a task left undone and the baron's getting frustrated now of course does he think to frighten me by reminding me that he is supported by bloodthirsty killers right <laughs> yeah <laughs> no that's a good point I totally missed that I did not catch that that little reverse on him there mm, yeah absolutely but I mean because he's because he's saying it could be 
because it gets back to, oh, I just ferreted Sardaukar over. And he's, he, and he's saying, well, then we'll just say that those Sardaukar acted out of order. And now he's pu- applying it to the Fremen. Like, oh, no, they're just, they're just out there killing, you know? <laughs> Doing a <their> thing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, because we know the Baron doesn't care about exterminating the Fremen. He's not interested. No. So that's no. why he's like, oh, how goes it? And he's not there, right? We know Raban's there. Yeah, putting the squeeze on. But no, what I, what I like that this leads to is this also finally gets us back to the matter of Thufir Hawat. Uh-huh. Um, like we haven't talked about him in quite a while, but this is another one of the reasons that the emperor wants the count to be talking to Baron. <laughs> is that you they lied. find out <laughs> that Thufir, yeah, Thufir Hawat is alive and you lied to us about it. Yeah. Only a white lie, my dear count. I hadn't the stomach for a long argument with the man. <laughs> about lying to, lying to that scary Sardaukar commander he was kind of shitting in his pants about. <laughs> I like that. And uh, I, I like how he tells him how he's suborned the man, essentially. Right. His duke was dead. <laughs> and, and, and I needed a Mentat, come to find out. So what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and well, how he keeps him in control, too, is just so fucking dark. So That wild. they've already given him a poison... And it's just in his body and can kill him at any time. And they only keep it at bay with an antidote in his meals. <laughs> and if they <laughs> ever stopped putting that in his meals, he would just die in a couple of days. No kidding. Jesus. Yep. <laughs> Fucking tough work contract you have to sign for the Harkonnens. I do like this moment. This is a, this is a real rubber meets the road moment between Fenring and the Baron when he orders him to withdraw the antidote. And he just says, I better see an Imperial seal with that order because I am not killing this guy. I'm using this guy. Yeah. Why do you suppose up. Fenring pushed him in this direction to, to off Thufir? Um, I think as, as a bit of a, a bid to get him to kind of bend the knee. I think you're like, right. Of, of basically just like you lied to us about this and he is a genuine loose end because he's in, in, in their eyes, in both Baron and the emperor's eyes and, you know, essentially the count as well. Um, all the players on the Atreides side are dead. Like, they're all, they're gone. Like, that is over and wiped out now, except for Thufir Howitt. Like, he's the last guy standing, and they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Why would you let this last Mm -hmm. possible piece of evidence who can blab about everything live in your house? (laughs) What are you doing? Um, And he's just, and and, uh, what I find interesting is the Baron's reasons for keeping him. Mm. he's pretty vague about and he just kind of talks about being like uh, uncomfortable without uh having a a mint hat around that he's always had one so i needed one so i just took him and i'm like really there's no extra affinity you have for thufir or something else you think you can get from thufir and you know maybe i'm missing something but i i I feel like the baron is hiding that a little yeah Yeah, i mean and he made it he, he made it sound like listen your people are dead you're here uh, you know, but, but yeah, it's, it's risky business for sure. But the Baron is very confident in his ability to suborn and flip and manipulate people. Very. <laughs> and it seems to be working as we're going to know in a moment here as fate engages in combat with an Atreides man, by the way. Yeah. The Hawk. The Hawk. <laughs> but, um, before that, I like this idea of, this verbal sparring, there's so many threats between Fenring and the Baron. And, you know, uh, I, I, I like the, uh, him just saying with the help of a few Sardaukar, he's like, what, 
Where else would the emperor have found a house to provide the disguising uniforms to hide his hand in this matter? He asked himself the same question, Baron, but with a slightly different emphasis. And I like this. I like the idea of, does he think he's going to move against me? What, what are we doing here? He's like, he hopes he doesn't have to. But um, so much, so much power that Fenring has. Think about Fenring's power for a minute to stand here in the face of the Baron and tell him this stuff, to speak with such authority on these matters. What yeah. do you what do you what do you think about um, the dare the emperor charge me with treason before a full land tried council? Baron's kind of talking to him about he he just it's interesting that it's going this way. The emperor cannot believe I threatened him. The Baron permitted anger and grief to edge his voice. The emperor believes what his senses tell him. This is a very contentious meeting that seems to get more contentious as it goes on. Yeah, they do get really heated here, and for me, the, I mean, I would say the biggest surprise in this was just how much the emperor seems to almost despise baron harkonnen as much as the atreides did sure um sure. like there there seems to be a real fucking edge of anger to to all of this and and disgust towards towards the harkonnens which again i mean i think that comes back to that that question that he asked of you know talking about the different emphasis on the same question of mm-hmm. who could they go to to basically pull this horrible <laughs> backstab of course you go to the harkonnens i like like there is some almost like shame by association mm. that the emperor is seeming to have with with the harkonnens and almost viewing viewing it differently now in such a long feud between the houses already so what a perfect somebody's already motivated to do harm to the atreides right right it's like mm. you might as well use that tool even if it's kind of a gross one yeah but uh, that the 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 baron starts to get these you know, as he thinks about this contention, as this scene progresses full of tension and outright hostility, the idea of uh, Baron starting to consider uh, what would happen, right? Uh, the Emperor dear, dear, need dare nothing. And the Baron starts thinking to himself, it would happen in my lifetime. He thought, Emperor, let him wrong me. Then the bribes and coercion, the rallying of the great houses, they'd flock to my banner like peasants running for shelter. The thing they fear above all else is the Emperor Sardaukar loosed upon them one house at a time. That's a very important takeaway here because we have to remember that we have a land shroud of, uh, how, uh, we have land shroud, the land shroud exists for a reason, to help with the great houses, to keep them in check, to have a council of equal protection. Because, what we don't want, we know the emperor is very powerful, but we know other people are going to vie for that power sometime. But we also know that if anybody looks like they might potentially threaten the emperor, that they're going to go away. That's exactly what happened to Leto. And, uh, and, and you know, the Baron has a great point here. What the other houses don't want is for them to be picked off individually one at a time. I think this gets back to a, a good mafia analogy that we had in the past. This idea of you're the boss. You need to protect your captains. If your captains feel that any one of them could gang up and take out any of the other one of uh, anyone else without the boss doing something about it, they're going to flock to other banners. That's the best way I yeah. can try to describe it, right? They, the other houses need to feel like what happened to Atreides cannot also happen to them and that what happened to Atreides makes sense. And hey, it's just a beef between the Harkonnen and the Atreides. That's why the emperor needs to be out of it. And that's a great point by the Baron to bring this up. Think about if this leaked, the other houses would be like, wait a minute, maybe the emperor needs to go. Like that, the fact right. that that happened, that's what he's saying, right? Let him wrong me. Let him threaten me. I'll coerce. I'll bribe. I'll rally the houses. 
under the idea of what happened to the Atreides. I'll use it, he's kind of saying. It will be what I use against you guys for what treachery you've unleashed. And, um, and what do they fear? He'd be playing on their fears. And that fear is that the Emperor comes down and smashes them. Right. And, and smashes them, most importantly, one by one exactly. as they are singled out instead exactly. of being a unified force. Right. Um, yeah. And, dude, I, I love, you know, <laughs> one of my favorite lines from the Count is when he says, uh, as they're getting ready to finally go off toward the arena for mm. Fade's, you know, slave warrior battle, <laughs> um, <laughs> he says, the house is minor, wait for you to leave them. <laughs> Almost pointing out that, like, I know what you want to get up to. I know what you think the, the card under your sleeve is. Indeed. The Baron even thinks and, double meaning, double meaning, right? <laughs> exactly. Double meaning, <laughs> you little fuck. Good stuff. <laughs> and this leads to a, a bit of an action scene. And um, and this is pretty wild. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> boy, are the Harkonnens some savage-ass people. <laughs> Bread and circuses for the people. Bread and circuses, man. Absolutely. Bread and circuses. Keep them happy with blood. Yep. Yep. There's a little more there's a little more uh, stabbing at the Baron when he says, you know, your heir is not sanctioned yet. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That's of course gonna piss him off. But uh but before but you know, that's kind of before everything gets wild. But uh it gets into this great fade uh getting in there and he's got knives, the whole pomp and circumstance, a short knife and a white gloved hand went first into a sheath and the long blade and the black gloved hand, the pure blade. That was now unpure, his secret weapon to turn this day into a purely personal victory, poison on the black blade. This moment carried its own suspense and fade. Ralph had dragged it out with the sure hand of a showman, right? Because they get into this battle with this guy, and it's and it's just awesome, man. I, I love this fight. I love the fear that this guy provokes in fade a little bit. There's this yeah. determination that this guy seems to have. And because we, we come to find out that the, the only thing that Ralph is actually banking on to win this fight like you know it's not mm. the poison sword it's not the poison long sword in his hand which people don't even realize because as tradition has it with harkonnen battles in this way the short knife is supposed to be the poison blade sure and the long knife is the pure one and he has secretly poisoned it um that's one of his little you know cards up, up and sometimes the they drug them ahead of time right exactly like, a lot of times they end up getting drugged ahead of time but with him they have a word that he has has been conditioned to, if he hears it, to basically go slack. Mm-hmm. Like his muscles just give out on him, and he stops moving. Yes, uh, or at least long enough, long enough of a pause to give Fade time to exploit it. Right. Um, and the word is scum. Scum. <laughs> just scum. And like, what a, I mean, just like a dentist shooting a tranquilized lion in Africa. Like, Fucking what brutal. a completely honorless way of going about this. Mm. Oh, gladiators were supposed to be hyped on Ilaka drug to come out kill ready in fighting stance, but you had to watch how they hefted the knife, which way they turned in defense, whether they were actually aware of the audience in the stands. The way a slave cocked his head could give the most vital clue to counter and faint. <laughs> Outcharged a tall, muscular man. Yep. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And like you said, Hawk, the formalized Hawk, one of Duke Leto's fighting men, no simple gladiator. And I like how it just sends a chill down his spine. But, yeah, they get into this great battle. And um, 
He kills the man. But no, he doesn't, right? The man kills himself out of spite. Yes, dude. That is such a good moment. When he goes down in the sand and then he rolls him over. Fade actually dips down and rolls him over to kind of like display him to the crowd. And there's just his own knife stuck in his chest. Mm. He wouldn't let him have this. That's right. Very cool. And, you know, we get to see some martial prowess out of, out of Fade. You know, obviously, this is a bit of a hollow victory, but it's still kind of neat. You know, you, you, got, you got to see him doing a little fighting. Yeah. Yeah. You, you definitely know that he is trained. He is definitely a trained fighter, you know, in the same way that uh, Paul received, you know, formal imperial training. Um, yeah. But we don't know if he's gotten nearly as much of the Bene Gesserit or Mintad style training as Paul. Yeah. But we see that he is combat ready. That's for yeah, sure. there's something I don't want to go by too fast. But before he kills him, there's this great moment where he says, they cheer for me now, Fade Routh, I thought. He heard the wildness in their voices, just as Hawaii had said he would. They'd never cheered a family fighter that way before. And he thought with an edge of grimness on a thing Howard had told him, quote, it's easier to be terrified by an enemy you admire, end quote. Mm. It's very, very interesting. It's easier to be terrified by an enemy you admire. That's, that's showing too much respect, right? Too much deference to an opponent. It's going to hurt right. you in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be a little disrespectful. Yep. <laughs> and then it, because the later the Harkonnen says to him, I do not fear you, Harkonnen's, Harkonnen swine, <laughs> essentially. But yeah, he does. He does. Uh, he does roll him over after the whole scum incident, and um, uh, you know the place really takes to fade. He has a charisma apparently to him, and uh, or or he just got lucky in the moment of this craziness, this madness that has enraptured this place. This you know, as as is it Proximo describes in Blade Runner, the mob, the crowd, it rises right as he's you know, kill another man and they'll love you for it. <laughs> they'll love you forever or something he says <laughs> oh shit but there's that brief moment where he's gonna dedicate it to her but he doesn't anyway uh yeah, yeah it, it, it's awesome you know it's it's pretty wild to watch the way it's going and and they ch- chant head 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 the baron scouting was fade rather turned to him and dude. um man this, they this saw was- the fucking dude's head off Wait, they but they don't actually, don't they? No, yeah, exactly. That that's the thing. Yeah, like that's what I and I found that very interesting. I did not expect that from Fade. I, I did not think that he was going to have any sort of deference or respect to the man, even though even though internally we know that he's feeling that and a sense of admiration for him in, in one way, I did not think he was going to allow any display of that. Um, but he actually stops them and says, bury this slave intact with his knife in his hands. Yes. The man earned it. Yes. Um, and, and even Count Fenring leans in a grand gesture, that true bravura, your nephew has style as well as courage. <laughs> so he has, won, he has won some respect, at least, and some admiration from the crowd. Yep, yep. Very, in, in that, they, I mean, they're carrying him out of that place, and that's something the Baron sees right away is, this is a big night for Faye. That's a great gesture. The man right. earned it. Yeah, it's a great gesture to to the masses <laughs> that right. he is standing in front of. What I like about this is how the Baron misreads this. I find that fascinating because the Baron doesn't miss much, does he? But his assumption is the crowd will be mad that they'll that that they'll be insulted that he's refusing the head, and that's not what happens at all. No, no, he's wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I, I like the idea of that because we know he's the nave Aaron or the heir designate and uh, the idea that he might be seeing something. We've never... We're, we're never really given the idea that fate has any wisdom whatsoever, right? We, we get the, he's kind of, we get the idea he's kind of adult who's just sort of a fly by night type. We don't, it's interesting that he gets something right that the Baron got wrong as it regards to a mass of people. That seems like an interesting development. Yeah, no, that's a good point. The, the fact that, I mean, if nothing else, that maybe Fade is just a person more of instinct, whereas Baron is a Indeed. person of intellect. Indeed. And, and Fade just has a better instinct for, for especially regular people, maybe. Especially <laughs> right after a combat, which was plenty of instinct. I think, yeah. I think he couldn't help but feel some sort of deference to the man. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. That he, that he is... That is an experience that the Baron no longer shares. That's <laughs> not something he's, he's any familiar with anymore. He could walk unarmed and unshielded through the poorest quad quarters of Harco tonight, the Baron said. They'd give him the last of their food and drink just for his company. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so he believes, anyway. So but. he believes. <laughs> but it sounds like he might be accurate. Indeed. Uh, this is where... Um, they get into she's talking to uh, her husband, right? Where she's like, "I'm gonna yeah. have to, I'm gonna, this guy's gonna have to plow me, basically." Yeah, dude. Yeah. So what? <laughs> what's up with that? <laughs> this comes. This has got to come back to to more Benny Gesserit planning, correct? Y- like, yes, a hundred percent correct. She's a Benny Gesserit, and you know, now that Jessica has failed the Benny Gesserit plan in the sense that. She did not provide a female heir for for Fade to to impregnate to therefore like preserve the the lines of each of their families. So now they want Lady Fenring to to be impregnated by Fade. So it so pres- it seems because remember there's a Harkonnen the there's a Harkonnen element to this to this uh, to this prophecy. Obviously, we know about the Harkonnen heritage of Paul, right? Right. But uh, I like how this gets into it. They're, they they talk about it was planned, the entire performance, all the doubt, it sinks of Hawat. Indeed, she said, I demand only that the Baron eliminate Hawat. That was an error, my dear. I see that now. The Harkonnens may have a new Baron heir along, if that's Hawat's plan. So this conversation between Fenring, between the lady and the Count, is important because they're almost saying, I wonder if Hawat's going to get rid of the Baron. Like, do we think that he successfully suborned him? The Harkonnens may have a new Baron heir along if that's Hawat's plan. Because I like how the Count, it gets back to like the Count just, offer, just having almost like a power trip. Like, oh, you're going to destroy Hawat because we say so, because you didn't, because you, did, because you lied. Your lie is going to cost you your toy. And the Lady Fenring is saying <laughs> here, that was a mistake. And, and the Count is saying, you're right, it was a mistake. Yeah. I love that. I love that he's saying, you know what, you're right, because... If if he gets rid of the Baron, if there's something up Hawat's sleeve, they're thinking, well, that might be good for us. <laughs> like, just let him be. Uh, that will bear examination. And uh, the young one will be more uh, amenable to control. So they're saying, if we end up with Fade, that's better for us to control Harkonnen. Because as we know, the Count Lady Fenrir acting in the Emperor's best interest and controlling House Harkonnen is in their best interest and it's difficult to control the Baron. He's very wily. Fade, yeah, easy smart. to control. <laughs> That's a great... Yeah, we literally saw that he was easy to control easy earlier to in this control. chapter. We saw them do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, the young one will be more amenable to control for us after tonight. She said, "You don't anticipate difficulty seducing him, my little brood mother." No, my love. You saw how he looked at me. Yes, and I can see now why we must have that bloodline. Indeed, and it's obvious we must have a hold on him. I'll plant a deep. I'll plant deep in his deepest self the the necessary prana bindu phrases to bend him. And then she's like, you know, afterwards, can we get out of here? Because I don't have a child in this place. <laughs> this place is disgusting. The things we do in the name of humanity. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's a great chapter. But, but they're talking about preserving the bloodline. The That's the only way to be sure, because they don't know Paul's fate, right? Right. Well, it even ends with them being unsure of Paul's fate, bringing up the, the Bene Gesserit saying of do not count a human dead until you've seen his body, and even then you can make a mistake. <laughs> absolutely yeah that's great so yeah they're not sure about paul they're not sure uh, so why not why not hedge our bets <laughs> right right might as well get our hooks in the next one be ready absolutely <laughs> so that's chapter 35 sir that's good stuff i i really enjoy that chapter i really enjoy that dynamic it's a ton of dialogue we talked a lot about dialogue but it's it is the chapter and yeah. exactly what's going on and in, in the Count Fenring and the Lady Fenring's place in the Imperium and the power they wield and uh, in and, and, uh, and the idea of this kind of back and forth and Arrakis and what we're doing and the threats and the control and the... This is really complex writing to, to do this, right? To, to see... Uh, it's almost like, where does the conspiracy go now that the, now that the plan has been executed? Right, it's classic in the movie to see leave no witnesses. But now we see these people have to interact with each other. They can't just kill each other. They can't just get rid of the Baron. It's difficult, and um, I like that. But the Baron has information and, and can feign ignorance, and he's wily. And and uh, when the idea of wow, his little pet Hawat might do him in, this is good because we got Fade. If we want Fade, no problem. Very cool. <laughs> right. This brings us to chapter 36, Matthew, which is uh, not a ton goes on in this chapter, to be frank. This will probably be a bit short, but we'll, we'll plow through it quickly here. All right. Well, this chapter opens with... Muad'Dib tells us in a time of reflection that his first collisions with Arakeen necessities were the true beginnings of his education. Hmm. He learned then how to pull the sand for its weather learned the language of the wind's needles stinging his skin, learned how the nose can buzz with sand itch and how to gather his body's precious moisture around him to guard it and preserve it. Hmm. As his eyes assumed the blue of the Ibad, he learned the Chakobza way. Awesome. Stilgar's preface to Muad'Dib the Man by Princess Irulan. Nice. So Stilgar's writing on this one. Stilgar. Yeah. Stilgar's getting a little, starting to doodle in his pad a little bit. You know, I'm not going to lie, Dean. It kind of pisses me off that the book itself just gave us a spoiler and it didn't even warn me. didn't give me no spoiler warning. Stilgar makes it, makes it into the future. Okay, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I don't have to worry about Stilgar no more. There's so many characters to worry about. At least we don't have to worry about one, for God's <laughs> sakes. It's true. <laughs> we know that Princess Irulan and Stilgar will be around <laughs> writing books. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is... Um, this is pretty much like we're done with the funeral and here we are, the troops returning to the Siege. And um, this just kind of gets into a couple of different things. Uh, I think most of this is throw your hood off, who's still your home? And uh, he helped Paul releasing the hood, catch elbowing a space around them. 
and uh, we get into uh, this situation where we're introduced to to somebody. For well, first of all, we learn that Cheney is the daughter of Liette. Yeah, absolutely. And we learn that it's confirmed to Paul that Liette is in fact dead. Yeah, confirmed to everyone through the mm. little messenger bird. And based on the last chapter, which was all of that discussion about the water and the vision, this is a bit of a blow to the tribes, I would imagine. Right, right. Because like we, like we established at the end of that chapter, I mean, we, we've come to realize how much of everything the Fremen are now doing was in fact a big part of Kynes' vision, that, yeah, that they had taken that on, and that mm. was kind of been the motivating factor for, for all of the Fremen, or at least all the ones we know of. And obviously we care about how the Fremen feel about Liet's death, but we really care about how Paul feels about it because he's our guy. And uh, it's described as Paul felt a burst of anger. The man who had befriended them helped save them from the Harkonnen hunters. The man who had sent his Fremen cohorts searching for two strays in the desert. Another victim of the Harkonnens. Just Mm. more reason to hate them. Indeed. Does Usul hunger yet for revenge? (laughs) Ah. Farouk asked. Farouk. So, um, this is, uh, the, Paul's about to get a bomb dropped on him. There's a little bit of levity here, you would say, right? <laughs> yeah, this bested my Jameis. This? Boing. <laughs> her arms were bare to the shoulders. He could see she wore no still show. Her skin was pale and olive. Dark hair swept back from her high forehead, throwing emphasis on sharp cheekbones and an aquiline nose. She sounds beautiful. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, she's, uh, what, what is this? Hara. Hara, oh, Hara, Hara, Hara. I think Hara is how they say it. Hara. Hara. <laughs> Be silent, Hara. So, um, I guess we get into some, uh, some interesting Fremen tradition here. Yeah, He's not but a point. boy. My children made fatherless by another child. Surely it was, ac- it was an accident. that when you kill a guy as a Fremen uh, you inherit the perfect sitcom premise and you get to inherit his family (laughs) my new dad who murdered my old dad (laughs) I think I've seen this movie it's called The Last Samurai (laughs) (laughs) killed my dad with a sword and now you're my dad that's kind of what happens in Last Samurai he kills that guy in the battlefield who comes to find out it's that woman and then he's like, she's baking a marmor. He lives in the house. He's eating their food. It's. It, I love the idea of of that in in that film, and we see it playing out here with a little bit more uh, you know, levity. I think is a good way to say it. There's a yeah. con, there's it's a tiny bit of comedy in a in a very not not much comedy type of book, but <laughs> indeed. Uh, Usul, it's our way that you now have the responsibility for Jameis' woman and his two sons. His yali, his quarters are yours. His coffee service is yours. And this, his woman. <laughs> like, okay. And I like how she's just like, yeah, cool. So are we plowing? Like, what are we doing? What do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> what, well, yeah, what's the move here? <laughs> uh, and I, lo- I love her anger when, you know, he asked at first, like, may I change my mind at a later time? And Stilgar tells him that he's going to have a year. You have a year to, you know, decide if she's going to be your wife, your servant, or if you want to just free her and let her be her own person completely. Like, that, that, that's all part of the tradition. It's up to him. And so for now, he says, I accept her as a servant. And she goes, 
but I'm young. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> but I'm young and hot. What the fuck? I like how, oh, ha- I so like good. how Harold lifted her arms, turning slowly on one heel as Stilgar's like, do you accept her as woman or servant? She's like giving him a little display. It's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was, uh, I still look as young as when I was with, jo- with, with, uh, Joff. Is that how you say that? Maybe even Jeff. But, I just uh, said Jeff, yeah. Jeff. Before James bested him, <laughs> this, this lady, man. James killed another to win her, Paul thought. But uh, yeah, I like that. You have a year to decide. He, you know, I accept her as servant. And I like how he just levels with her. He, he says, you know, you'll never not have a place as long as I live. Like there's something honorable about Paul, of course, saying that. Right, I agree. I agree. And again, what a nice juxtaposition to come back from Fade Ralpha to Paul. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Just the type of character that he has. He's like, just even through. There's no introspection with Fade. None. Yeah, none whatsoever. You know, as we're sitting here talking about it, one of the earlier premises about the book, Matt, was we were talking about you know animal intelligence versus human intelligence. Maybe you almost played out when we look between Paul and Fade. Mm, that's an interesting point. That instinct you talked about earlier in the last chapter. Yeah. That Fade is more of an instinctual, animalistic mm. person. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, and we did we did talk a lot. I mean, there's a lot in the beginning of the book, especially with the Reverend Mother, about Paul, you know, are you even a human? Have you even exactly. passed that level? Yep. Um, and, you know, it makes me wonder if the Reverend Mother, Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, would see Fade Ralpha and be certain whether or not he's an animal. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if Fade passes the uh, the Gamja bar. <laughs> yeah, I think he might get fucked on that one. Right, <laughs> a little too hasty. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I'll not harm you, uh, Hira. You show me our quarters, and he smothered his voice with relaxance. I love that. You'll not cast me out when the year's gone. I know for true. I'm not as young as I once was. As long as I live, you'll have a place with me. I love it. <laughs> he just inherited yeah. himself a little family. Now you got kids to look after. I mean, damn. Yeah, yeah. you just had to grow up a whole lot there, Paul, real quick. You killed a guy, and now you're a dad it with gets... a mortgage. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. The bills? The mailbox <laughs> is full. Bills. The mailbox is stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I like the, again, the difference between Fremen culture and the culture of the Atreides or the Imperium proper is just this idea of him really wondering, do you, do you not hate me? The assumption is just, I killed somebody that you care about. The default is you hate me. That seems reasonable, probably across many human cultures. <laughs> right. And but uh, with this, that the, there are these strictures that change that. That, and I, I, I just love how unquestioned it is. Like for us, it's a new rule that has to be followed. Um, you know, the idea of you know not mourning. <laughs> one you lost in this type of combat in this trial by combat mm. um and that they are <laughs> that they they have willingly given themselves over to this and and put their lives on the line and now you will uh, be indebted to the person who took their life yeah that is just their culture like they don't right. think anything beyond it and she's literally like why like you just said like why should i like confused by the by the the, the notion. question confuses yeah the notion confuses why should i hate you i bested yeah. james <laughs> she's like well i'll in the time of mourning i'll mourn him i mean that we that's set aside there's nothing personal again nothing per- it's just business this is just business over here right there's nothing mm-hmm. personal by the way they're making it sound <laughs> right right 
Uh, and this is where we see just some of the production here, man. The uh, the dew collectors, the plastics, and uh, you know the the idea of like I like how the Fremen are like, yeah, we'll, we'll flee eventually, but not yet. The Sardaukar are hunting us, and uh, this place will be empty soon because we have to leave soon. But until then, we continue to work and get stuff done. Paul's got this like, shouldn't we be? Paul Paul probably doesn't understand how fast they could strike this stuff down and be on the move. Right, right. Because he's still he's still seeing it in production, and mm-hmm. he's like, "Well, wait a minute, shouldn't that all be turned off and being packed up now?" Like he even says that, like, "Shouldn't we be packing if they're coming for us?" Yeah. Um, but yeah, he just doesn't understand their ways. That that's not how they operate. She know she even knows that they are so far out from their region, they haven't even penetrated the area yet. Yeah, she has a great passage here where she says, "Each bush, each weed you see out here, out there in the erg." How do you suppose it lives when we leave it? Each is planted most tenderly in its own little pit. The pits are filled with smooth ovals of chromoplastic. Light turns them white. You can see the glistening in the dawn if you look down from a high place. White reflects. But when old father son departs, the chromoplastic reverts to transparency in the dark. It cools with extreme rapidity. The surface condenses moisture out of the air. That moisture trickles down to keep our plants alive, right? Uh, it's funny. We don't know this woman from a hole in the ground, but we know she's pretty smart, right? We're yeah. learning about her and, and, and what this means. The, 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 I think the revelatory nature of this paragraph is so much that we go, wow, they're so sophisticated. It's not just, oh, there's a couple of leaders who've risen out from the you know, nose-picking savages. But no, these are sophisticated people. Right. And, uh, right. and everything you think you know about them from the early chapters is nothing, right? And, and it's almost, it, it, you almost get the Trojan horse of kinds showing you how sophisticated they can be. And you're thinking, wow, can they all be like kinds? Well, maybe not like kinds, but they're all pretty sophisticated in terms of this type of intelligence or this type of uh, knowledge. Right. I mean, I think even the way that this chapter, this short chapter is yeah, structured. Short. Is is it? It's kind of buttressing this idea that all fremen, all of them, not you know, like we are introduced to a fremen at home via Hera, yes. and you know, I think it would be easy to write her off as like, oh, well, like maybe in this culture she's the woman who stays at home and blah blah blah. But like, no, we find out she works in the steel suit factory yes. this season. Every single person here is highly competent and educated and and skilled. Like skilled. every single one of them. Yeah. Um, and, and even the way that we learn more about her and learn about what she's capable of and learn about what the Fremen at large are capable of, mm-hmm. we even come to the point where he's walking past a classroom where children are still going through their lessons and, and chanting and repeating, you know, these symbols that they're seeing on a, on a board that a teacher is pointing out to them, even in the midst of the Harkonnens being out to destroy them all. And they know mm-hmm. they're coming. They know they're going to have to leave the Sietch the classes still keep going. And he even asks, like, you conduct classes at a time like this? And that's when she, she talks to him about this This was Liet's way. It's part of their culture that the dead must not be forgotten. And he said that we should never pause in this education. The education is so crucial. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah. I like that because, you know, one of, we, we see often uh, places of strife, uh, the Middle East or what have you, places of strife. We see a very... A, a very resilient and tough people emerge out of that where something terrible happens and a couple of days later people are right back in those fucking classrooms they're right back in their lives they're right back at the market they're right back life goes on they can't stop 
Whereas if we're unaccustomed to that, something like that happens in the U.S. and things grind to a halt because we are processing it and we're trying to figure out how we feel about it. And we have that luxury. But when you think about living like this, and, and, and I think that's a, that's a pretty fair comparison, right? Like when you take a, a war-torn area where people are like, oh yeah, a rocket just blew up that building, but I'm, I'm going to go play soccer tomorrow night. I, don't, I think we're good on rockets today, tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's, it's wild because what are you going to do? Just sit at home and cry? No, like life has to go on. And, and I like that. They're being hunted by elite killers, and they're in class. They're not panicking. They're doing what they have to do. They're maintaining what they have to maintain to continue to do that which makes them who they are as people and why they survive as people. Right. It's and really, I would, really admirable. Really admirable. I would also say, too, I think it shows that unlike the Harkonnens, um, they keep a close tab on what their enemy is doing <laughs> and where they're at. <laughs> Great point. Like I, I get the feeling that that they pay close attention to where the Harkonnen patrols are, how close they're getting, how much they know. Like they take their enemy seriously, indeed. Whereas the the Harkonnens are making the fatal mistake of not taking their enemy seriously, and totally underestimating them. Probably dispatching a tenth of the force they even need to to begin to address the Fremen. Great passage here. He felt that this Fremen world was fishing for him, trying to snare him in its ways, and he knew. What lay in that snare? The wild jihad, the religious war he felt he should avoid at any cost. I love this because this gets away from mom, doesn't it? I like that he's starting to feel the lure and the pull of what this life could mean and how much more sophisticated it is and how welcome he is here and how he's looked upon here as not just a boy with all these expectations, but somebody who, you know, put up or shut up, like get out of the way if you're not going to do anything. Not like, hey, you're the kid and we got to train you and we got to, there's all this pressure on Paul, right? For, for his own safety, it makes sense why House of Trades put a lot of pressure on don't sit with your back to the door, etc. But uh, I like that. I like this idea that he's feeling this pull on this world, but also the, 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 the duality of the fact that it could be leading to something horrific. And he still has this idea of, I must avoid this. So he's got one foot in his Imperium life and one foot in the Fremen life still, and it doesn't seem like he's willing to put both feet in this Fremen life, does it? No, no, definitely not. Yeah. Not yet anyway. Just because of his visions. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's the, the main thing that's holding him back is, is this belief he has now that any motion forward into Fremen culture is mm. headed directly towards the scariest, you know, potential outcome. Indeed. Uh, I like when they get back to the, the little holly, the house, I believe it is. And I like, I love how Hara or Hara is giving him almost like a, hey, need help with that still suit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, big 15-year-old boy. <laughs> hey, 15-year-old strumming lad. I want to have a 30-year-old playa. But no, um, <laughs> I like how he's like, no, 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 the, the food will be fine. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> that's enough. Uh, just get the, and that's when, yeah, because, you know, she starts staring at him and saying, oh, your eyes are strange but not entirely unattractive. He's like, please, with the food, I'm hungry here. <laughs> <laughs> I just like how she smiled to him, a knowing woman's smile that he found disquieting. <laughs> that's such a good way to describe it. Disquieting. <laughs> <laughs> I am your servant, she said. Yeah. His mind drifts to Cheney. They've both lost a father and, you know. But. Right. Right. He thinks about how that they are alike in that. They have something between them. Uh, because I do find it really interesting that we have had, honestly, very little with 
with Chaney so far. Sure. Um, or Chani. I don't know how to say it. Right. I think it's Chaney. But, uh, I think it's Chaney in the audio book. It's, uh, I go by that. Oh, word. Okay. Chaney. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, we, we haven't gotten to see Paul interact with her that much. We've had a few, you know, funny moments and a few close moments where they are near each other and interacting with each other, but not for very long. Mm. Um, you know, cause she, after the news of Liat Kynes comes, you know, he doesn't even see her again. She actually kind of disappears. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really wondering how much more, what, what that's going to be like, because, you know, I imagine that Cheney is only going to grow in importance because this is the, you know, the girl, yeah, she's his age dreams. Yeah. yeah he, I want yeah. that too. <laughs> she dreamed, he dreamed about her. That's the main thing for me is that he had these vision dreams that it, that had her in it. The only person mm. like that that he dreamed about. Right. Um, but we're still not getting that much time with her yet. So yeah, yeah. I'm it's very interesting. Curious to see if that's going to be coming more. <clears throat> I also like the. Uh, I also like the um, him just reflecting on this life too. Obviously, his his mind just Cheney drifts all over the place, and he considers just this culture and the profound depth that he finds in it in its subtle oddities. And one of the things he notes is there's not a poison snooper anywhere. <clears throat> there's no treachery within the tribe, right? Mm, yeah. I love that. Because think about how much he's been trained to avoid treachery. How at any minute somebody could be trying to knock him off. But that just isn't the case out here. If the case out here is that we all are in this together because if not, we're all going to die. It's very different when the environment's trying to kill you like it is. As it appears, the Imperium has mastered their environments, right? <clears throat> so right, now they've right. they've moved on to squabbling with each other a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, they don't have the more of like forced solidarity. <laughs> like we are all against this. We're all against the same thing crushing down on us. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Again, like we were talking about at the top, the conditions of this world are what formed them and pushed them together. Indeed. In this chapter, wraps with. <clears throat> He, he hears a rustling, and then he sees uh, two young boys, age 9 and 10, staring at him with greedy eyes. Each wore a small kinjal-type weapon of a Chris knife. Kinjal-type of Chris knife rested a hand on the hilt, and Paul recalled the stories of the Fremen that their children fought as ferociously as the adults. Dad! <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to get a three-way knife fight between Paul and two children? Is that, uh, is that, is that, is that or be... it's, it's the kids. It's, the, it's his new sons. <laughs> My new boys. <laughs> uh, the newest Dune sitcom. Yep, yep. Got to be careful killing from and you start inheriting problems you might not want. <laughs> Don't just go off the handle killing Fremen left and right. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps us up. Let's tell the people what we're going to be discussing next time on the Mind Killer. All right. Next time on the program, Matthew, we're going to be doing chapters 37, which starts with the hands move, the lips move. We're going to be start. We're going to be doing chapter 38, which is no woman, no man, no child. And we're going to be doing chapter 39, which is deep in the human unconscious is a pervasive need for a logical universe. And uh, that will take it by the looks of it. That's going to be pages five sixty five in my book through about six fifteen or so. Correcto mundo or six fourteen. Yeah, close enough, but close to our fifty pages or so, fifty five, maybe sixty pages this time. But yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and then we're marching on. We're in book three. We're in the home stretch. Just about once we're done with next week's episode, or I shouldn't hey. say week. Next time is the best way to say it. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right, my friend. Well, 
let's um let's bid these good people adieu and uh thank you guys for of course hanging out make sure you check us out on discord we're continuing the conversation over there would be streetgeek.net slash discord we have a dune channel if you want to get in there and chat about the dune movie the dune books the dune universe dune the plans within plans Mm-hmm. And uh, make sure you uh, share the podcast with somebody if you're enjoying uh, some mind killer action. All right. I think we're out of here. Matt, tell these good people goodbye. The spice must flow. Goodbye. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord.